0: Hello, and welcome to the Not-A-Cast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. My co host, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work. Soon as he's back, which is going to be in the next week or two, we will resume our weekly Song of Ice and Fire podcast with a Storm of Swords. In the meantime, I've been doing episodes with a rotating series of guest hosts on a variety of topics, as well as text and audio posts of my own, like this one. Every week while Jeff is away, I've been going back through J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings for patrons. Recently, I released one of those episodes covering the prologue to The Lord of the Rings and the first two chapters for everyone. And this week, I'm going to be doing the same thing. This episode is covering chapters three through eight of the first book of The Lord of the Rings. So those chapters are Three is Company, A Shortcut to Mushrooms, A Conspiracy Unmasked, The Old Forest, In the House of Tom Bombadil, and Fog on the Barrow Downs. So if you enjoy this episode, there are many more Lord of the Rings episodes over on our Patreon covering the rest of Book 1, all the way through Books 2 and 3. So over at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, all our patrons get access to those Lord of the Rings episodes. So check that out if you enjoy this one. Everyone likes the first two chapters of the Lord of the Rings. Everyone likes Bilbo's birthday party, and everyone likes Gandalf's dramatic backstory monologue about the Ring. But now the journey itself begins, and this is where Tolkien loses some people. These travelogue chapters are self-indulgent, the argument goes. They slow the book down. At the precise moment, it should be speeding up. It's not exciting. It's boring. I sympathize with these arguments, and I'm not going to pretend I love these chapters as much as I do The Shadow of the Past, which is a flat-out masterpiece. But I do still love them, and on reread, I think it's clear why these chapters are structured this way. Tolkien knows exactly what he's doing. He anticipates our boredom. Look at how the third chapter begins, with Gandalf telling Frodo he really needs to start his quest already. Do you wish Frodo would hurry up and kickstart the plot? Well, so does Gandalf. Tolkien is posing a question Why is it taking so long for Frodo to get going? In terms of the hero's journey structure, this is what's known as the refusal of the call. It's Luke Skywalker telling Obi Wan he can't leave home with him. It's Bran Stark trying to ignore his flying dreams. People are often annoyed with this part of the story because it seems unnecessary. We know the hero is eventually going to accept the call. We know Frodo is going to leave the Shire. Why waste our time like this? To show us the stakes. To give us a sense of loss, real loss. Something is left behind when you step onto the road that goes ever on and on. The call must be refused at first, so it feels important when the hero finally accepts it. We must recognize a choice being made, and recognize that it could have gone differently. As Frodo says, the minute he made the decision to go, he suddenly noticed all the good reasons to stay. This is a bittersweet truth about time, which is the central subject of the Lord of the Rings. You only fully appreciate something when it's gone. It's summer in the Shire right now. The trees were laden with apples, as Tolkien writes. Honey was dripping in the combs, and the corn was tall and full. We have food today, and we will have food tomorrow. It's the essence of the good life. It's the present moment you try to savor. But the present becomes the past and yields to the future. Frodo knows he has to leave. He just wants to wait until autumn, when the leaves turn brown and fall, when he can no longer ignore the texture of time. Frodo is also delaying because he still doesn't know where he's supposed to go, or what he's supposed to do when he gets there. This is in direct contrast to Bilbo, as Frodo points out. Tolkien is breaking the fourth wall here to communicate to the reader how the Lord of the Rings will work differently than the Hobbit. They are inverse story structures. Bilbo went out to find a treasure and come back. Frodo is going out to lose a treasure, and maybe never come back. Bilbo's journey, in retrospect, was the circle of life, there and back again, as his book goes, the harmony of life, death, and rebirth. Now Bilbo has been reborn as Frodo, their shared birthday hinting at their shared soul, and so Frodo will set out to follow him on their birthday. Remember, the hobbits like their stories laid out fair and square with no contradictions. For Frodo, Bilbo's story exemplifies that tradition. Only now does he understand that when you set out on your own quest, there is no map that can tell you how it will end. The gods might know, the reader can flip ahead and find out if we want to, but for Frodo, the unknown lies ahead, and there is nothing more terrifying to him than that. Even when destiny awaits, you can only get there on your own two feet, following the faded footsteps of those who went before you, knowing that they were only following the footsteps of those who went before them. Gandalf tells Frodo that it's okay not to know what's coming. Uncertainty is a part of life, and even the very wise cannot see all ends. Like Hamlet, Frodo is procrastinating in the face of moral responsibility. I think we've all been there at some point, paralyzed by our options, terrified of the consequences of acting. But sooner or later, all you can do is jump. Before Frodo can jump, though, he has to work out the logistics. As Gandalf says, it will not do just to vanish in the night like Bilbo. This being the Shire, that will lead to gossip, which the oncoming servants of the enemy might overhear. So Frodo has to keep up the pretense that everything is fine. The apocalypse is not approaching. Nothing about our sweet summer sunshine lives in the Shire needs to change. Frodo's just retiring, that's all. And so he sells Bag End to the Sackville Bagginses. The comic tone of the birthday party returns here, as the Sackville Bagginses don't even bother to conceal their avarice and greed, anything for an advantage, anything to get rich. They don't need the One Ring to behave this way. It's no surprise that these are the folks who sell out the Shire to Saruman. Indeed, money is the explanation Frodo offers for his actions. I'm running out of money. I got to sell-off bag in, live somewhere smaller. Once again, we see the hobbit gossip machine at work, cranking out the conventional wisdom. Previously, we've seen Frodo as a subject of these gossip sessions, like a bug under glass. But now Frodo is making use of the observing eyes, feeding them a bullshit story and allowing it to spread. The problem is that Frodo's story is running up against another, pre-existing story, just like how he's following Bilbo's trail. The myth of Bilbo's treasure is just too strong. People refuse to believe that it ran out, and suspect something else is up with Frodo, something to do with Gandalf. They're right but they don't know why, and that's the power of narrative at work. Publicly, Frodo declares that he is settling down in Buckland, the easternmost region of the Shire, which is where he comes from originally. He seems to be going full circle, there and back again, but his true road leads away from his birthplace, out into the wider world. The uncertain nature of Frodo's journey is emphasized by Gandalf's sudden disappearance. Gandalf popped in and out of The Hobbit as the story required. He couldn't always be around, or he would solve every problem too quickly. Tolkien's thumb is visibly on the scale there, which is fine because it's a story for children. But in The Lord of the Rings, there has to be a reason Gandalf is leaving. We'll find out what it is later. For now, all that matters is that he's worried. The wizard is worried. Something has happened. Something he did not expect. Even he is not in control of things. So what chance does Frodo have? Gandalf leaves, promising to return in time for the last birthday party. He doesn't. He's an absent guest at the party, just like Bilbo himself, another shadow of the past. Frodo is left feeling alienated and heartsick. Not only is he worried about Gandalf, he's nervous about confessing his true plans to his friends. That's kind of the emotional through line of these three chapters that we're talking about today. These young hobbits embody the life he's leaving behind, and half his heart wishes he never had to leave them. Still, they carry out the ritual of the last party, because such rituals are how we create meaning, allowing love to last in spite of time. They drain the last of the wine so the Sackville Bagginses can't have it. They can have the rest of the possessions. Nothing here will ever mean as much to them as it meant to Frodo, because he loved Bilbo, and they didn't. On the last night, after all that delay, Frodo suddenly decides to set out early. It's an instinct out of nowhere, perhaps sent by the being who made sure Bilbo and then Frodo got the ring. Why does Frodo have to leave now, right now? Because the servants of the enemy have arrived at last. Frodo hears the ringwraiths before he ever sees them. One is just around the corner, talking to Sam's father Hamfast. Frodo can't make out what the stranger is saying, but he and we learned all we need to know from the tone of Hamfast's response. He is clearly terrified. But in spite of his fear, Hamfast courageously lies to keep Frodo safe. As Gandalf said, the hobbits are tougher than many powerful folks might assume. As Ned Stark said, the only time a man can be brave is when he's afraid. Frodo sets out, following Bilbo's exact path from the first chapter without even knowing it. In the dim light, Sam looks like a dwarf, like one of the dwarves on Bilbo's quest. The circle of life which we carry out unconsciously is also the circle of story. Just as the quest in The Hobbit belonged to both Bilbo and the dwarves in different ways, The Lord of the Rings is Sam's story as well as Frodo's. Here at the beginning, as Frodo notes, he has taken on a heavier load in his backpack than Frodo. But we know that Frodo has a secret burden, an even heavier one. Before the story is up, Sam will have to bear that burden for his master as well. They set off with Pippin into the dark. As Tolkien notes, the hobbits don't need magic rings to vanish. They're just that close to the earth. Tolkien told us in the prologue that this is how they escape our sight to this day. Nature is the true immortal power, more so than any great ring. Respect nature's power and it will cloak you. There's a wonderful little moment when they stop to make camp and the fox comes across them. Tolkien takes us inside the fox's thoughts. He's curious about these hobbits in the woods. What are they doing here? He's sure they're up to something. And he's right, Tolkien says, but that's all he ever found out about it. Like the gossiping hobbits in the Shire, the fox brushes up against the story that will determine the fate of the world, and then moves on, not even knowing what he has seen. Nature has other concerns that make ours seem small by comparison. For Tolkien, what links our flickering mortal lives to the immortal circle of life is story, aka the road. It's like a river, Frodo says, with every path its tributaries. Frodo recites the famous poem about the road going ever on and on, down from the step where it began. Well, this is a contradiction. If it goes ever on, how can it have begun? Again, hobbits like their stories to make logical sense, with no paradoxes like that one. Frodo must accept a different perspective. He is entering the world of the elves, but also the world of the enemy. They go hand in hand, and so our heroes encounter both in this chapter. First up is the enemy. Frodo senses the Ringwraith coming, not with his ears, which report only the clop of horse hooves, but with his heart. He knows, in a way he cannot explain, that they must hide. Yet another part of him is curious. He wants to see the fantasy-made flesh, the stories brought to life. The Ring corrupts that desire, and almost exposes Frodo. As the hobbits hide, the Ringwraith sniffs, as if in search of a scent. It's like the ring is alive, like it can sweat and give off a smell. And in a skin-crawling moment, the ring seems to come to life, and seize control of Frodo's mind, almost convincing him to put the ring on. Turn invisible, it whispers to him, and you'll be safe. The opposite is true, of course. Putting on the ring would expose him to the wraiths, who dwell in the darkness of Sauron. Like Gandalf, their physical form is a mere mask for the mortals. After the Ringwraith encounter, to restore their spirits, the hobbits sing. Hobbit songs, Tolkien says, are about food and bed. Is this because the hobbits lack imagination? Not exactly. The song our heroes sing makes mention of setting out into the world to face the unknown. Rather, hobbits sing about food and bed, because that's how journeys should end. That's what you long for while you're facing the unknown. Simple comforts that you took for granted and will appreciate anew if you're lucky enough to ever experience them again. In contrast to this harmony, the circle of there and back again, is the Ringwraith, a straight line to a vanishing point. He comes sniffing after them again, but is dissuaded by the arrival of Gildor and his high elves. They too are singing, but their song, their story, their lives work a little differently. The hobbits can't make out exactly what they're saying, like how Sam got lost in the world-building details while eavesdropping on Frodo and Gandalf in the previous chapter. But just as Sam still picked up on the emotions, so the hobbits are able to feel their way through the foreign language. As Tolkien writes it, the words and melody seem to combine to form thoughts in the hobbits' minds. That's the power of language, adaptation, and translation. It's the power of storytelling, and the elves embody the power of storytelling. They are singing about that which they only remember in myth, the harmony beyond the horizon, the immortality waiting in the West. It's a vanished paradise for them, just like the Shire for Frodo. He stares down into the valley containing his home, wondering if he'll ever return. That's how the elves feel all day, every day. It's a permanent state of alienation in which you only feel at home in legends. The elves are magnetic to mortals. They are entrancing, enveloping. When you're talking to them, it's hard to remember doing anything else. They belong to the same world as the ringwraiths, and so they only agree to hang out with the hobbits when they hear that a mysterious black rider is on their trail. The elves take their hobbits on their road, as they put it, their branch of the Tree of Life. Turns out that the Shire isn't completely isolated. Other worlds coexist within it, like the past and future existing within the present. As Gildor says to Frodo, it is not your shire. The wide world is all about you. You can fence yourselves in, but you cannot forever fence it out. The elves live within nature. It's impossible to separate the two. The stars seem to cue their song, which in turn seems to activate their fires. Their hall seems like an organic extension of the forest. What a contrast with the industrial stink coming off the ringwraith. Even the hobbits seem wasteful by comparison. The way of the elves is alluring, but it's also alien. Sam and Pippin remember having the time of their lives that night, yet if you press them for details, they can't seem to recall anything specific that was done or said. It all vanishes like a dream upon waking, and this is typical for fairy tale worlds. Even Frodo, the elf friend, can only hold on to words. Experience fades, we're left with the story. No one knows that better than the elves. They have their own labors and sorrows. They do not interfere lightly with the affairs of others. The gap is so wide that Gildor doesn't feel comfortable learning what Frodo's mission is, nor explaining who the Black Rider actually is. Frodo must soldier forth in ignorance. The only useful information he gets from the elves is about his only concrete goal, finding Bilbo. Frodo is on his trail, they say, as this story follows in the footsteps of the Hobbit. The next morning, the beauty of the Shire feels more fragile than ever. Frodo calls the sunshine treacherously bright. He no longer trusts it. He has seen through it. You know who else hates the sun? Gollum, of course. Frodo has stepped onto the path and cannot turn back. He knows it. But does he have to take his friends with him? Look at Pippin, laughing and dancing on the good green earth, not a care in the world. As he says, who would want to think at breakfast? That's innocence, a beautiful and delicate thing, doomed to die. Frodo is already resigning himself to that fate. He is heartbroken at the thought of sacrificing his friends as well, and now resolves to leave them behind. Even Sam. But Sam won't be left behind. He resolves to go with Frodo to the end. He promised the elves, you see. The elves gave Frodo cryptic riddles. They gave Sam a simple, direct instruction. Don't leave him. The elves might laugh at the hobbits, as Gandalf calls them stupid and ridiculous, But in both cases, the elder races see the strength in the younger ones, and they support that strength on their way out of Middle-earth. A parting gift to these humble heroes from the gods. Gods. That's how the elves seemed to Sam. Above his likes and dislikes, he says, full of contradictions, old and young, happy and sad. Sam knows that he and his friends are stepping into the unknown, the road leading them into a great darkness, the shadow from which the elves are fleeing. Sam knows that this is his quest as much as Frodo's, that, as Gandalf said about Gollum, Sam has something important to do before the end. The elves gave him a glimpse of destiny. And yet, as Frodo notes, Sam does not seem transformed beyond recognition, as you would expect for a mortal that has stared down the gods. Sam still seems like Sam, just a little more thoughtful than before, maybe. This is the resilience of the hobbits Gandalf talked about. The reason Bilbo, alone in history, was able to walk away from a great ring. This is why, at the end, Sam is able to go home and stay there. Because no matter what he saw and did, he remained irrepressibly himself. Something the ring could never take away. Anyway, back to the quest. There's some more humor as Pippin warns Frodo against taking a shortcut, only to reveal that he just wants to stop off at a local pub and get plastered as only a Took can. This is a temptation, stay in the Shire and comfortably drink yourself into oblivion. But if they'd gone that way, the Ringwraith would have caught them, representing how staying in the Shire and ignoring Sauron's rise would only allow him to take over. That's not to say Frodo's shortcut works as intended. As soon as they leave the road, the prescribed path of story worn down by all the feet before you, everything gets harder. The land itself seems to be working against them. There is no straight line to Frodo's destination. Every option slows him down, challenges his choices, makes him consider if he really wants to do this, and if so, what the cost will be. This is what it means to forge your own destiny. You have to literally clear a path. Just when Frodo considers turning back, he spots the Ringwraith on their trail. The past is dead. The enemy stands between you and home. The only way out is forward. This chapter becomes a duel between innocence and experience. The elves have countless experiences, but are always longing to return to the light, the innocence of the West. As such, their drinks make the hobbits all giddy like children, forgetting the Black Rider on their trail, as the hobbits have gradually forgotten the shadow. But then, a hideous whistling sound comes through the forest. Another sound answers, and the hobbits remember all at once, as Gildor said, the Shire does not belong to them. They are being hunted in their own home. But the hobbits are not entirely alienated from the Shire. They are saved by one of its residents, good old Farmer Maggot. Frodo seems as scared of him as of the Black Rider. Why? Same old story, innocence and experience. As a young hobbit, Frodo used to raid Maggot's farm for carrots and mushrooms. This is what passes for a capital crime in the Shire. It hardly seems to matter when you're being hunted by a shadow demon who works for the devil. But it does matter to Frodo. This is the perspective of the Shire that he is being forced to leave behind. One last time, he gets to care about something this small. He has come back to the domain of his youth. He is saying goodbye to his memories. Farmer Maggot emerges with his dogs, and all of them together is another great source of comedy. They seem fierce, but unlike Frodo, the reader can tell that they're well-intentioned. They don't really hold the past against Frodo. They only tease him that they do. Farmer Maggot is willing to move forward. Why? Because he met the Black Rider, and this has given him some perspective. Frodo's wayward youth doesn't seem as important as it might have before. Summer is over, the Shadow has found the Shire, and it is time to make hard choices. Like the elves, Farmer Maggot does not probe too deeply into what these young hobbits are up to. He can tell they're in trouble, and that's all that matters to him he helps them out for no reason other than that they need him. Maggot is a good neighbor, and an even better friend, as Frodo says. It's sad to leave him behind. So they get one more good meal out of it, another ritual to both mark and defy the passage of time. Farmer Maggot takes his time with the story of the Black Rider, because in spite of the grave subject matter, he enjoys having the company. He enjoys it far more than he would the reward offered by the Ringwraith for helping him find Frodo. Power will abandon you, as Gollum found out. Story is what survives. Farmer Maggot takes the hobbits to the Buckleberry Ferry. There's some tension on the way when a strange horse approaches them, but it turns out to be Merry, just as the spy outside Bag End in the last chapter turned out to be Sam. That which you thought was your enemy is actually your friend. Frodo thought Farmer Maggot hated him for stealing mushrooms back in the day, but as the chapter ends, Frodo sniffs the air and realizes that the maggot family has given him and his companions more mushrooms. Remember the ring wraith sniffing earlier? Well, humble mushrooms smell better than great rings any day. The next chapter, final one for this week, is titled A Conspiracy Unmasked. A first-time reader might be worried that this refers to the servants of the enemy, but it's another clever misdirection on Tolkien's part. The conspiracy is actually among Frodo's friends. We see that from the start of the chapter, when Mary says there's something funny going on, but it has to wait until they all get inside. On the surface, he's talking about what his friends have been through, but he's also talking about his own little conspiracy. One of the most beloved aspects of The Lord of the Rings is its imagery, specifically the way Tolkien describes nature and how man-made objects interact with nature. You can see that here as he describes the fog giving way before the ferry and the twinkling lights emerging on the far side, the windows built into the large hill where Mary's family lives. Tolkien stops the plot here for some backstory about Odo Brandybuck, who founded Buckland, what Tolkien describes as a colony of the Shire. I love this because it shows that even in the Shire, things do change over time. Borders move. Unique subcultures develop. A new generation takes new risks. Bilbo and Frodo might be unusually curious about the wider world, but they are far from the first hobbits to challenge the conventional wisdom. The folks in Hobbiton think of the Brandybucks as strange, But then again, Farmer Maggot thought the folks in Hobbiton were the strange ones, and good thing Frodo's come back to Buckland where we have sensible folks. It's all in Where You're Standing. We look at the same stars and see such different things. Tolkien tells us that, in most respects, the folks in Buckland are like any other hobbits. There are really only two noteworthy differences. One is that they like the water. They like to sail and swim out on the river. We already know that's how Frodo's parents died. It can be dangerous to step outside your door, and the same applies to the other thing that makes Buckland different, the old forest, as they call it, just outside its borders. Tolkien doesn't tell us what's waiting in the forest yet. He doesn't have to. All he has to tell us is that the Bucklanders grew a hedge to protect themselves, and that unlike other hobbits, they lock their doors at night. We get the sense of it. We get the fear and the prospect of danger just from that. These are the borders of perception. This is as far as the Shire way of life extends before the outside world pushes back. But more on the old forest next week. For now, the danger is behind the hobbits, not ahead. They spot the ringwraith on the western bank. Our heroes speed ahead to Frodo's new home, or so it appears. It's a cozy little place all to itself, warm and inviting inside, with all of Frodo's things moved over from Bag End. Looking at it all, Frodo feels like crying. It would be so nice to stay here, like it would have been nice to stay with Gildor or a former maggot. But he can't. It's like leaving home all over again. How will he bear it? With a little help from his friends, of course. Merry has prepared them all baths to wash away the sweat of the road. Pippin sings as he bathes. It's another one of Bilbo's songs. I love how all these younger hobbits learn their stories from him and keep them going now that he's gone. The road goes ever on and on and the sweet feeling of hot water after a long journey is timeless. After dinner, the hobbits get down to business. Merry presses the others about what happened on the road. Pippin has to tell the story, because Frodo stays silent. Finally, Frodo confesses that there is more to his adventure than they know. He wants to tell them the story, but he doesn't know where to begin. And it turns out that doesn't matter, because they know the story already. This is a great twist because, like Frodo, we are inclined to think of his friends as naïve buffoons who are well-intentioned but could not possibly grasp the larger issues at play. Now we learn better. Frodo doesn't tell his story to them, they tell his story to him. They knew all along. I especially love the part where Merry makes fun of Frodo's melancholy attitude. Dude, did you think we couldn't hear you whispering goodbye to every valley? It's easy for the tragic hero to get wrapped up in their own arc and reduce everyone else to supporting players. But like Sam, Merry and Pippin love Frodo for who he is, not what he must do. Which is why they are insisting on helping him do it. That's what friendship means. That's what love means. Frodo might want to do this alone, but that's just not how life works. Martyrdom can be a form of arrogance. His friends have the right to risk their lives every bit as much as he does. As Mary says, he can trust them to help. He can't trust them to let him go off on his own, because they will not do that. They can't carry it for you, Frodo, but they can carry you. This is everything Sauron has never understood, and so this is what will bring him down. A fellowship. Not everyone is coming, though. Fredegar Bulger, aka Fatty, is staying behind to keep up the pretense that Frodo is still in the Shire. He's like the Pete Best, the original drummer of the Beatles, who left the band before they got big. Fatty represents Frodo's younger and more innocent self, that which is being left behind. For Fatty, the old forest is the edge of the world. It's the source of darkness and fear. No one ever goes in there, he says, despite that not actually being true, because it's not a literal place for him. It's the subconscious, the repressed shadow that the hobbits only barely remember. This is so bittersweet because, of course, there are far stranger and more dangerous things out there than the Old Forest. Fatty has gone so far and can go no further. Unfortunately, as Tolkien hints, those darker forces will come to him. The chapter ends with Frodo dreaming of those darker forces, and also their opposite, the unseen power that moved Bilbo to find the ring, and then Frodo to receive it in turn. He sees a forest of, quote, tangled trees, and hears creatures sniffing after him, just like the ringwraiths. He knows they will find him eventually. This is Frodo's repressed fear of the ring, his knowledge from Gandalf's story that it might turn him into a wraith like them, like Gollum. But, as Tolkien writes, the forest also looks like a sea, the sea across which Frodo will journey at the end of the story, away from Middle-earth and all his friends, and away from the memory of the ring. Frodo has never been to the sea, but in the dream, he he somehow knows that's what he hears. The trees vanish suddenly. He's alone with a white tower, like those in the Shire that point the way west t- to the Grey Havens and beyond. Thunder cracks, lightning flashes. Frodo is climbing Mount Olympus, the ladder to the gods, leaving all else behind. So every week I'm going to be talking a little bit at the end of these episodes about the movie adaptations of the Lord of the Rings and how they handled each uh, section of the story in turn. The movie of The Fellowship of the Ring moves very swiftly through this section, cutting a lot of it out. There's no conversation with Gildor and the High Elves. There's no farmer maggot. There's no fatty Bulger. There's no, no conspiracy among Frodo's friends. I do think you lose a lot of the richness and complex emotions of the story this way. You can already tell they're not going to do the scouring of the Shire because there's no setup for it. And while Merry and Pippin are developed more later, in the beginning they really are just the buffoons they appear to be And this moment where Merry reveals how smart he is never happens. That being said, from a cinematic standpoint, a lot of this stuff would be dead weight. It would drag the pace down and lose a lot of the audience. So Peter Jackson and company kept what they needed for plot momentum. The ring wraith on the road, Merry and Pippin joining Frodo and Sam, their departure across the river. The execution of the Ringwraith scene is particularly effective with this horrifying dolly shot on the road to highlight the unreality of their presence. And even as the filmmakers reduce the time we spend with just the hobbits, they preserve the all-important character beats, especially Sam. Sam says that he's been told to stick to Frodo. In the movies, it's Gandalf who tells him that, but that same emotion of, I'm going to stick with you to the end. And then there's that other beautiful line in the movie that everyone loves, when Sam Sam says if he takes one more step, he'll be further away from home than he has ever been. And that gets across the essence of these chapters, even if I do miss the specifics. At the end of Chapter 5, Frodo was dreaming about his destiny. As Chapter 6 begins, Merry wakes him back up to reality. Time to make your dreams come true, whether you like it or not. The hobbits set out before dawn, all mist and dew, as Tolkien describes it, a time for new beginnings. The hedge looms before them, covered with cobwebs, in case it wasn't spooky enough already. It sure spooks Fatty Bolger. This is where he turns back, wishing Frodo and company good luck in the Old Forest. But, as Frodo says, they'll be lucky if the Old Forest is the worst enemy they encounter. Out in the wide world, there are things that make the Old Forest look like a playground. Frodo knows it. He's already encountered a Ringwraith, after all. But Fatty represents the conventional wisdom of the Shire, in which the Old Forest marks the edge of the world. The other four hobbits step over that edge. Mary closes the gate behind them. Tolkien describes the sound as ominous. They have officially left the Shire and entered the unknown. All they have to go on now is story. That's the first thing they talk about. The first question that comes up about the world outside their home. Are the stories real? Yes and no, Mary replies. The stories that frightened Fatty as a child, all about goblins and wolves hiding in the forest, those aren't true. They're tall tales to keep the kids in line. But that doesn't mean the old forest is an ordinary place. Far from it. The trees are alive, Mary says, much more so than trees in the Shire. They watch, they whisper. When night falls, they do worse than that. The trees don't like strangers. Once, Mary says, they attacked the hedge. The hobbits burned down part of the forest in response. Ever since, the trees have become very unfriendly indeed. In a way, the Old Forest reflects the Shire itself. You have the hobbits gossiping and criticizing anyone who strays from the conventional wisdom, and then you have the trees muttering to each other about punishing strangers. The difference is that Frodo and company were at home in the Shire. Now they are the strangers. The Shire is all about a feeling of belonging. Everything about the Old Forest tells the hobbits they don't belong here. Welcome to the world outside your door. The Old Forest also reflects the structure of story. Mary says that paths appear in the forest. No one knows who makes them, and they seem to change all the time. You don't know where your story will take you, and it won't be exactly the same as those who went before you. Frodo wants to follow in Bilbo's footsteps, but the road will change under his feet. Tolkien does some of his best work in the woods. My favorite part of The Hobbit was the journey through Mirkwood, a pitch-black forest that slowly drove the dwarves mad with deprivation. Later on in The Lord of the Rings, Merry and Pippin will explore Fangorn Forest and meet the Ents. In between those two, we get the old forest, and Tolkien nails the hobbit's growing unease as they realize Merry was right. The forest itself is alive. There are no animals, no undergrowth, no sound. Nothing but the trees, innumerable sizes and shapes, straight or bent, twisted, leaning, squat or slender, smooth or gnarled. The hobbits can feel their disapproval like you sense tension in a room. Pippin can't stand it and shouts to be let through. The woods swallow up the sound as if muffled by a heavy curtain. The hobbits are outside, but it feels like they're inside, trapped in a haunted house. Thankfully, Mary soon finds the bonfire glade where the hobbits set that fire I mentioned earlier. This is their temporary refuge, but also a reminder of the hostile history between the hobbits and the trees. Can they coexist? At first, it seems like they can. The trees open up and they proceed quickly along the path. But then the trees start to close in again. It gets hot and stuffy. Every sound lands with a thud and the anger of the forest becomes unbearable. Frodo decides to sing a traveling song to lift their spirits. Songs cheer everyone up in the Lord of the Rings. But it doesn't work this time. Frodo's song about travelers making it through the woods only pisses off the trees. They don't want to hear about the end of their domain any more than most hobbits want to hear about life outside the Shire. These are insular little communities whose borders have been breached. Part of Frodo wants to go back, retreat from the challenge, and stay home. But a branch falls behind them with a crash. As with the Ringwraith in the Shire, the road back has been cut off, and all they can do is plunge ahead. The hobbits make it to the top of a hill, allowing them a view of the surrounding area. Mary points out the Withywindle River Valley, saying they must avoid it because it's the heart of darkness, where all the power of the forest comes from. Beyond the forest, the hobbits spot the Barrow Downs, a place with a sinister reputation that they also want to avoid. Naturally, the hobbits will wind up in both places. They set out confidently. It looks like a simple path, but as soon as they get back into the weeds, obstacles appear out of nowhere. It's another metaphor for story. Your journey only looks easy from a distance. It's difficult to actually do it. On a literal level, though, the Old Forest itself is interfering with the journey. It's skin crawling to realize that the hobbits aren't just having bad luck on the road. They are being herded. They are being hunted, just like with the Ringwraith. The trees, the bushes, the sudden gullies and ravines. They leave the hobbits with nowhere to go but southeast into the Valley of the Withywindle, exactly where they didn't want to go. When they reach the river, Merry discovers another path running alongside it. Pippin gives voice to suspicions that the reader probably shares. Whoever made that path probably didn't do so with good intentions, and it's starting to seem like the scary stories about the old forest were true, after all. But what choice do they have? As they ride, the hobbits suddenly feel hot. Very hot. And very sleepy. Frodo can barely keep his eyes open as he looks up to see an ancient willow looming over them. Its limbs like arms, its branches like hands. There are openings in the tree, like great mouths gaping. The leaves are moving hypnotically in the wind. Or is it the wind? They seem to be moving by themselves, whispering, calling. There is a voice on the edge of hearing telling the hobbits about cool water and sleep. Merry, Pippin, and Frodo fall asleep, one by one. Only Sam resists, as he is later able to bear the ring without succumbing to its power. It's that good hobbit sense, the secret strength Gandalf was talking about. Sam realizes there's more at work here, besides the sun and the sky. The tree really is singing, and now it strikes. A root grabs Frodo, dunking him into the water. Sam pulls him out, only for them to discover that the willow has swallowed up Merry and Pippin, the wood closing around them. Frodo again wishes they'd never left home. This is what the adventure he longed for as a child really looks like, and all he wants now is to be safe in the Shire with his friends. He was so worried that they would sacrifice themselves by coming with him, and now it seems to have happened. Sam, again the practical one, proposes setting the willow on fire. But as soon as they do that, Merry and Pippin begin to scream. He will kill them, they say. Who's he? The tree itself, old man willow. Back in the Shire, it seems like the hobbits lived in harmony with nature. But Frodo's parents drowned in the river, and now they're well past the river. Turns out that Mother Nature is not necessarily nice. It's a world of predators and prey out here, and the hobbits are prey. Frodo kicks the tree with all his strength, and all it does is laugh at him. Unlike Gildor and his high elves, the hobbits are mere mortals and cannot command the power of nature. They need someone who can. Thankfully they find one. Tom Bombadil is probably the least beloved character in The Lord of the Rings. A lot of people don't like that Tolkien stops Frodo's journey dead in its tracks so the hobbits can hang out with Tom for a while. People also don't like the tone of Tom as a character. He's just too silly with his little rhymes, his little songs. I think these are fair arguments. The Lord of the Rings has an episodic structure early on that does seem like a holdover from The Hobbit, in which Bilbo and the dwarves had a self-contained little adventure every so often along the way. Tom's goofiness also seems like a throwback to that earlier book for kids. If you're into the Lord of the Rings for the grander, darker, big-picture stuff, the more self-consciously adult material, Tom might not appeal to you. On reread, however, I think it's clear how Tom fits into that larger structure. He's not psychologically realistic, because he's a character out of myth, every bit as much as Old Man Willow himself. His nonsense rhymes remind me of Alice in Wonderland. Both Tolkien and Lewis Carroll break down language to its core components and then jumble them up. The effect is to make you feel like a kid again, when you were first learning words and playing with them like toys. In the middle of this horror scene with Old Man Willow, here comes Tom with his weird made-up words and a literal feather in his cap. He's all bright blues and yellows in contrast to the greens and grays of the forest. It's a shock to the system, a reboot for the reader, as well as the hobbits. Who the hell is this guy? I talked last week about the push-pull dynamic between innocence and experience in Frodo's story. The same applies here. Tom is both innocence and experience, the oldest being in creation who behaves like a little kid. On one hand, he's able to save Merry and Pippin from the tree. Tom sings to old man Willow and then beats him with one of his own branches. This tree is basically a god having physically rearranged the old forest around the hobbits in order to lure them into its lair and devour them. Yet Old Man Willow shudders before Tom Bombadil. He must be a god as well. But what was he doing in the woods when the hobbits found him? He was gathering flowers to bring home, like a dutiful son or a humble husband. A simple life. Speaking of home, Tom promptly invites the hobbits to come have dinner with him. They follow in his wake as night settles on the old forest. The hobbits remember the lights of Buckland shining through the mist. They're in different territory now. Tom's domain, the domain of mystery and dreams. Steam rises, strange whispers echo, and the trees seem to have faces staring down at them. We've entered the fairy tale forest of Snow White. It's so surreal that the hobbits wonder if they're even still awake. Are we still locked in the willow, dreaming that we got rescued? Suddenly, the ground rises and the mist fades. Tom's house appears before them. Like Gildor's hall in the Shire, it seems to proceed organically from the forest itself. Tom's voice rings out, and another voice joins it, a voice that sounds like spring itself, like water falling like silver, as Tolkien puts it. This is Goldberry, a river goddess. Tolkien describes her in terms of the natural world. Her gown as green as young reeds, her belt shaped like a chain of lilies... She has more lilies floating about her feet so that she looks like she's standing in a pool. She's like the Lady of the Lake. Goldberry and Tom preside over a pocket universe that runs on enchantment, in which the songs are made flesh. The hobbits just blink as they stand on the threshold looking at all this. It's like entering another world. So what makes Tom and Goldberry different from the elves? Is this just a repeat of Gildor's Hall? Yes and no. As Frodo says, the enchantment is similar to that of the elves, but different in tone. Less lofty in its delight, but deeper and closer to the mortal heart. The difference is that the high elves are leaving Middle-earth. Tom and Goldberry never will. They belong here, not in the West. They are not melancholy and alienated like the elves. As such, there is not much in the way of dramatic conflict. I get why that bores people. But what Tolkien is showing us here is harmony achieved. This is the standard that everyone else can't quite live up to. This is what it means to coexist with your environment so completely that you seem to flow into it, and it seems to flow into you. Frodo is so inspired that he sings a few lines before he stops, embarrassed, unsure of where that came from. The elves hypnotize near mortals. There's never a sense the hobbits could be like them. Tom and Goldberry are more grounded. When they sing, you sing with them. Above it all and down to earth at the same time. How can this be? The hobbits like their stories laid out fair and square with no contradictions. And so they ask Goldberry to resolve it. Who is Tom Bombadil exactly? I love her response. He is. What more is there to say? Tom is older than your categories, older than your psychological need for a constructed identity. He simply is. Goldberry calls him the master of the wood. The hobbits interpret this to mean that the wood belongs to him, but that's not what Goldberry means. No one owns the forest. Rather, Tom is the master because he cannot be harmed here. Tolkien is arguing that the essence of the good life is not having power over others, but freedom from others having power over you. As Goldberry says, this is what it means to live without fear. The shadow cannot touch them here. It's like living in a dream. And as the hobbits sleep, the song continues. Merry and Pippin have nightmares about the old forest, with the willow returning to strangle or drown them. When they wake, they hear Tom and Goldberry's voices soothing them. Frodo dreams of a man atop a tower, gilded by moonlight. In retrospect, we know this is Gandalf escaping Saruman's clutches at Isengard. Frodo also hears the Black Riders coming for him. The only hobbit to sleep through the night is Sam. It makes for a great punchline. After all those tension-filled paragraphs describing the other hobbits' dreams, Tolkien just says, Sam slept like a log. But that's Sam's strength, his contentment, which is the focus of the final words of the Lord of the Rings. The next day, Tom sings to them about life in the forest. Old Man Willow hypnotized them with song, and Tom was singing when he found them. He says it was by chance, if chance is what you want to call it. As the Silmarillion tells us, all of existence is part of the song of our creator, Eluvatar. Even the discord of Melkor, Tolkien's Lucifer figure, is ultimately part of that same song. What Tom does is crack open the doors of perception and show the Hobbits the melody, the source code of the universe itself. As he sings, they begin to comprehend the metaphysical structures behind everything. They begin to understand the rocks and streams and bushes like they do themselves. Better even than they know themselves. The hobbits start to feel like they are the strangers upon this earth. It's easy to make fun of Tom's goofy dialogue and brightly colored clothes, but there is an unsettling quality to his song. As Frodo says, this is not comfortable lore. The old forest is well old, older than they could even imagine without Tom's perspective to guide them. At its heart are the fathers of the fathers of trees, primal souls that have survived unchanged. They used to spread across the continent. Now they are a fraction of their former selves and are filled with hate for those who came on two legs with fire and axes to clear the earth for themselves. Most powerful of all is the willow whose malice spreads invisibly, tendrils of thought, seizing control of earth, water, and wind. Suddenly, Tom stops calling him the cutesy nickname Old Man Willow. Like so many powerful figures in The Lord of the Rings, the tree has another name, its name for itself, the Great Willow. Who else is called Great in this story? Sauron. And he, too, conquers with sheer force of will through corruption and temptation. He too is a fraction of his former self, the last reminder of how things used to be. All the great ones, dark lords and trees alike, are passing away. And so Tom changes midstream, now telling the story of the mortals. I love how Tolkien writes this. Tom's story is now moving much faster to reflect the pace at which the mortals live their lives. It's a dizzying montage in which great kingdoms rise like the sun glowing on their steel swords only to fall moments later. Flesh withers, dies, and burns. Our treasures serve only to decorate our tombs. Grass grows over everything, supporting sheep in the circle of life, but even that wilts in the face of the shadow. All that's left is death itself, the barrow whites, the tombstones like their grinning teeth. The Lord of the Rings is about time. There is no power greater than time. And yet... Even time had to begin at some point, didn't it? What lies before it? Tom's song reaches past the forefathers of the elves and then suddenly stops. He sits there silently, perfectly still. The hobbits watch in wonder. Frodo can't tell how long it's been. He does not feel hungry. He does not feel tired. They have done what no mortal can do. They have stepped outside, time itself. Of course Tom's story stopped there. He was about to describe the indescribable, that which came before narrative, before thought. All he can do is be. That's how Goldberry described him when the hobbits asked who Tom is. Now Frodo asks again, who are you? Tom gives the same answer. I'm Tom Bombadil, and that's all there is to it. Who would you be, Frodo, alone and nameless in the dark? How do you know who you are? Frodo will have to face those existential questions as his story continues. Tom says that he is the eldest. He came first. He has not just escaped the shadow, he remembers a time before it came, from outside. I think that Tom's role in the story is the antithesis of Sauron. Just look at how Tolkien describes Tom handling the ring, his bright blue eye looking at the hobbits through it. The ring as an eye? Hmm, why does that sound familiar? Sauron is the red eye of malice and greed, glaring at Middle-earth through his ring of power. Tom is the exact opposite, he has a blue eye looking through the ring, and he embodies generosity and hospitality. Sauron poured his essence into the ring, and any mortal who wears it falls under his shadow. But when Tom puts it on, it has no effect. He doesn't even vanish. Later in the book, during the council at Rivendell, Elrond hears this story and asks the logical question that the reader might be asking. Why not give the ring to Tom? If he's the anti-Sauron, wouldn't he, by definition, be the best one for the job? I think Gandalf speaks for Tolkien when he explains why that would be a bad idea. Tom is so far removed from everything the ring represents that he just wouldn't take it seriously enough. He'd forget about it, or worse, throw it away one day. We can already see that here. Frodo is annoyed that Tom is treating the instrument of apocalypse so lightly. Frodo actually puts it on and vanishes for a second, in part to, I think, work out his own jealousy about the ring, but also to, to show Tom that this is meaningful. If anything, Tom is too pure to be helpful in this regard. I think that's interesting, especially given the Christian influence on the Lord of the Rings. Tolkien is arguing that a fully divine being wouldn't actually be useful In the struggles that flawed mortals face in their fallen world. Such a being wouldn't have the context to understand our problems. This is the contradiction of the ring. It feeds on your flaws, but you need those flaws to fully appreciate its power. To handle the ring properly, you have to understand it, and you can only understand it by being vulnerable to it. That's why Jesus has to be both God and man. He can only appreciate our struggles, including death, by undergoing them himself. Only a mortal like Frodo can bear the ring. Only a mortal like Aragorn can rule the world born from the ring's destruction. Tom does, however, prove helpful one more time before Tolkien kicks him to the curb. Fog on the Barrow Downs is a great standalone creep show. It ramps up the tension from the Old Forest and makes for a perfect transition to Bree and Aragorn. The Hobbit's journey through the Barrow Downs has a similar structure to their journey through the Old Forest. They climb a hill... They see what looks like an easy path ahead, but then they get attacked and taken prisoner, forcing Tom to rescue them. You could say this is repetitive, but I think it's a deliberate pattern in which similar elements keep getting worse. There is a clear symbolic structure to the hobbits' journey so far. Every step away from home not only plunges them into danger, but also strips away their illusions. Tolkien told us in the prologue that the hobbits assume that most of the world works like the Shire does. Now we see that the Shire is actually a lonely island besieged by a wasteland. Just outside is the old forest with nature turned malevolent. Outside the forest is the Barrow Downs, where even nature has fled and all that's left is death. This is a psychological journey as much as a literal one. It's about growing up, undergoing alienation, and facing mortality. What comes after that? Frodo dreams of the veil rolling away to reveal a green land under a swift sunrise. It's direct foreshadowing of his fate, sailing into the west. But the vision melts upon waking, and for now the hobbits are left with the forces of decay and despair. As they ride through the Barrow Downs, the shadow grows around them. Outside of Tom Bombadil's domain, Sauron's influence continues to grow. Instead of a willow tree, this time they're seduced to sleep by a standing finger of stone, an ominous warning. The hobbits very gradually fell asleep in the old forest. The reader could see it coming as it happened. As Tolkien writes it here, it happens suddenly. The hobbits just wake up from a nap they didn't intend to take. We've all been there. The uncanny feeling of time lost, the sun much lower than it was a second ago. It's very disorienting. But it's worse than that in this case. Tolkien lists off all the rational reasons the hobbits might have dropped off. The heat, the food, the exhaustion of travel... And he says that might be enough to explain it, hinting that it might not. The fog itself put them to sleep. As Tolkien writes it, they are shut in a hall of mist. Once more, the outside has become the inside, and they are trapped. Tolkien really shows off his horror chops here, as the hobbits make their careful way toward what they hope is the road. The chill numbs their fingers and sinks into their bones. Standing stones suddenly loom out of the fog where they hadn't been before. Frodo races ahead to the way out, or so he thinks. Suddenly, he's lost and alone. He falls off his pony and spooks it in his fear. He hears his friends crying in the distance, but by the time he gets close, it's too late. They have vanished. Frodo stands on death's doorstep, facing down the great barrow as the cold closes around him. Where are you? he asks of death. Here, death calls back. I am waiting for you. Frodo falls to his knees as two eyes shine like stars through the mist, and then he knows no more. It's bone-chilling stuff. Frodo wakes up in his tomb. For a moment, he gives in to despair. Fear is part of the very darkness around him, as Tolkien writes it. But then he remembers Bilbo and the Shire. Not every place is like this cold coffin. Frodo accepts death. And yet, this makes him stronger. He finds a core of wild bravery that comes with having nothing left to lose. He regains control of himself enough to look around, and spots his three friends. They lie asleep still, surrounded by treasures, with a sword across their throats. This is a spine-tingling image, showing us how all the material wonders of the world are nothing in the face of death. You can't take it with you. That's what the Barrel White sings about. This is Lord of the Rings, so even the skeleton zombie gets a theme song. It's the complete opposite of Tom's song. Tolkien describes it as a formless stream of sad but horrible sounds that gradually resolve into words, cursing the sun and embracing the Dark Lord's rise. This is the song of Sauron. This is what it would feel like if he won. We get another great horror image with a disembodied arm creepy crawling toward the hobbits, making for the sword to slit their throats in ritual sacrifice to the shadow. And for a moment, just for a moment, Frodo considers putting on the ring and abandoning his friends to die. He can see himself running free over grasslands. Gandalf himself would say there was nothing he could have done. This is the ring talking. This is what Sauron is counting on, his enemies turning on each other, failing to keep the faith. The last alliance broke him in the past. The Fellowship of the Ring is what will break him this time. Frodo rises above the cowardly temptation of the Ring and resolves to save his friends. He grabs a sword, strikes down the arm, and calls for Tom Bombadil. Tom shows up and saves the day by singing loudly about it, as usual. But the horror lingers. In the moments before he wakes up, Mary is briefly possessed by the ghost of one of the men who died here. Mary has to live through that man's death. He was killed by the men of karn Doom, servants of Sauron and the Ringwraiths, who came north to lay waste to the kingdoms of men that Tom was singing about. So the encounter with the Barrow White is more than an episodic scare for the audience before we get to Bree. Tolkien is again evoking the power of time a sensation lost for centuries, suddenly returning. Merry was captured by a tree in the old forest. He will later meet the Ents. He experiences the sorrow of men here. He will learn more about that when he meets Theoden, King of Rohan. These early adventures are setting up, in miniature, all the big ideas that will dominate the rest of the story. Tom told the hobbits about the fall of man. Now they have experienced it for themselves. Soon they will meet the man who must redeem mankind, Aragorn, a.k.a. Strider. So every week I'm going to be talking about the movie adaptations by Peter Jackson and company and how they handled each section of the narrative. There is a not much to say here, though. They skipped the Old Forest, Tom Bombadil, and the Barrow Downs, going right from the river to Bree. Even as I defend this part of the story, I think that was a wise choice. Tom's antics would have been a deal-breaker to modern movie audiences, and while the horror atmosphere of the forest and the barrows is effective, it made more sense for the movie's pacing to concentrate the horror in the minds of Moria, which is my favorite part of that first movie. Peter Jackson and company made the equally smart choice to show what happened to Gandalf as it happened, rather than waiting for him to reveal Saruman's treachery when everyone reunites at Rivendell. And this is just fun stuff, with Christopher Lee at his most vampiric, rolling every syllable beautifully, and then that wizard duel. It's a triumph of Dutch angles and spiky production design, but mostly it's about the casting. Lee and Ian McKellen sell this exposition. They make it seem theatrical and Shakespearean. When Saruman defeats Gandalf, you know Frodo is really in trouble now. So those were our episodes on The Lord of the Rings chapters 3 through 8 in the first book. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, there's a lot more Lord of the Rings episodes available over at our Patreon for all our patrons. That's at patreon.com slash A-S-O-I-A-F, where patrons can find Lord of the Rings episodes going all the way through the end of book three, halfway through the story. So if you like this episode, go ahead and check that out. And again, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon with Jeff and a Storm of Swords.